This morning our lesson will be found in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. If you want to follow along in the Pew, Pew Bibles, it'll be page 1049. I'll be reading from the King James Version. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 10 through 12. You are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we have behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us this morning, again, we welcome you. Thank you for being here. Uh, you being here is encouragement to us, and we just hope and pray that we can be an encouragement to you. Uh, we did have a tremendous stateside. What a blessing it was to be a part of that campaign. God just continually blesses us so richly. It was a blessing not only to see those that were converted to Jesus Christ, but the blessing to just go and, and to share that good news with the whole community, and especially a blessing to simply be able uh, to get to be closer to brothers and sisters in Christ there. And even some of the young people there are planning on coming up this evening and being at our vacation Bible school at least a day or two. And so God blesses us in many ways when we simply strive to do His will. Also, uh, when the group was leaving out Wednesday night, uh, Mitch Poskovich went into a Bible study with another uh, young lady and a young woman, and uh, she was baptized into Christ also. So now our, our total is, is six conversions, and uh, we are thankful for that. I appreciate Mitch and Dustin, as I'm sure you do, with the tremendous job that they did last week in preaching the gospel here at Mount Juliet. We appreciate those two men and their life and their abilities and the way they're willing to use that in God's service. Uh, do keep in mind, Vacation Bible School this week, one of the biggest weeks for us as a congregation is always Vacation Bible School. Uh, here on these premises from two-year-old up through fifth grade, and then at Mount Juliet Middle School will be sixth through twelfth grade. There will be a van running back and forth for any children that are dropped here, sixth through twelfth grade. That's no problem, but if any parent, if that's more convenient to drop there at the Mount Juliet Middle School, which of course is the school uh, immediately behind Mount Juliet High School. And so be sure and be making your plans. We do have some flyers here. They're in the fluorescent color. And uh, they are advertising the 6th through the 12th grade. And so if you have children or grandchildren, uh, please be sure and, and get those and pass them out. Uh, all week we should have a tremendous, tremendous vacation Bible school. You know, it's wonderful to have revival as we have sung and already commented upon the revival that even takes place not only in Dayton, but also here. I want to mention to you a few of our new brothers and sisters in Christ here in this area. Tiffany Shute, we're thankful for Matt uh, Smith's girlfriend and her becoming one of our sisters in Christ. And James Foxall and also Amanda Buchanan. And also this week, Trina Waldrop wants to ready, rededicate her life and be restored into a right relationship with God. And uh, we have prayed about that, and now we want to announce that to you as a part of good news. I can't remember a time where I've ever seen more good being done uh, in the lives of individuals that are studying the Word of God, individuals 
that are simply striving to become what God wants them to be. Let's make sure that all of us are part of that individually in our own life, but then let's make sure that we're prayerful about those that are continuing that study. And let's make sure that we're also an encouragement to those that are continually studying the Word of God, wanting to be what God wants them to be. Happy Father's Day to those of you that are fathers. Uh, What a blessing the day is. I have to say that my Father's Day started off perhaps as well as any Father's Day could start off for me. Uh, I was able to call my father this morning at 4.50 this morning. I did wait several minutes after I woke up before I did call him. And, uh, and as it would have it, he was already awake. Uh, I didn't want to really wake him up real early, but at the same time, I did want to wake him up because he has awakened me so many early morning hours to work. And so I was really hoping I would have uh, awakened him. And next time I'm going to call him at four. But, but uh, anyway, it's, it's a great Father's Day. It's off to a great start. And to all of you fathers, we do honor you, and we appreciate so much the, the, uh, the life and the leading that fathers do. And that will be our topic this morning, as we still stay with our same theme of capturing the heart of our community. Bill Haven, in 1924, was considered a shoe-in to win the Olympics in canoeing. He was a canoeing specialist that was known around the world for his skills. He surprised the world when he declared that because of his wife's pregnancy and the fact that she should be giving birth at that time, that he would decline the offer to compete in the gold, uh, to compete in the Olympics, even though everyone thought for sure he would win a gold medal. Although he could not show his little boy that was born Frank a gold medal while he was growing up, he did show him a good father. And they enjoyed the waters and the rapids so much growing up. As a matter of fact, they enjoyed it so much that 24 years later in Finland, there was another Olympics. This time, Frank went to compete in that same Olympics. And a day after the competition, Bill received this in the mail. Dear Dad, thanks for waiting around for me to be born in 1924. I'm coming home with the gold medal that you should have won. Won. Your loving son, Frank. What a beautiful thought. A father that was willing to put family as the highest priority. A father that was willing to sacrifice self for the benefit of others, and especially the others being his family. When we think of all the ways to capture the heart of a community, and we really stop and meditate and study upon this truth, It's no surprise that whenever Paul wanted to show us how he won the heart of those in Thessalonica, that he would say, listen, we need to learn some things about motherhood. And if we can just treat people the way mothers treat people, we can reach more souls. We need to learn some lessons from fatherhood. And if we can just treat people the way fathers treat people, we're going to be able to win more souls. In other words, as we begin in 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter, he talks about their conversion and how thankful he is that they are converted. But notice as we read 1 Thessalonians 1 and 7, notice when he says, talking about their conversion and their life, he says that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. Now notice verse 9, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. 
and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now notice as we read the second chapter in verse 1. For ye yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Do you see how he not only talks here of what they became, but he talks about the way Paul and Silas came to them. He talks about the fact that the way they came to them was gaining attention. In other words, how is it that missionaries are able to go into an area and win the respect and win the souls of others? Paul says that's been a matter of discussion. And then as we go throughout the second chapter, we see him discussing the manner of entry that he had to them. Now, you may remember several weeks ago, we looked especially at the seventh verse, the second chapter, verse 7. Notice as we speak of motherhood here, he says, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Now, even though this is wonderful to study about what mothers should be, here he's saying, we understand that mothers are this way. Now, this is what we need to be to the community about us. This is what we need to be to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we read on in verse 8, So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Now, a few weeks ago when we looked at this, we talked about the fact that if we're going to reach the community around us, we're going to have to have the tenderness that a mother has, that gentleness that he speaks about. We're going to have to be available to the community. When people are hurting, we must be there. When people are celebrating, we must be there. Mothers live among their families. But also note the fact of the appraisal of a mother toward her children. A mother cherishes her children. Also notice the commitment. She imparts life. She allows them to nurse. She would even give her very own life for them. And so when we think about that undying love, when we think about that commitment that, that Paul is saying, look, we understand this is what mothers have. Now, do you have it toward those outside your family? Friends, it's no small order what Paul is challenging us to do here. And so now let's spend the rest of our time this morning looking at the text that's already been capably read for us. It's a text where he says, I also want to show you another way that we entered in among you. We entered in among you as a father. Look there again at verse 11. At this time, we're not going to read the whole text again, but notice verse 11. He's already talked in verse 10 about some of the characteristics that they had as they came. And in verse 11, he says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. It can't help but be noted here that Paul is speaking to a congregation of people that, that were sitting in a city of people. But notice how he spoke of the individuality. Charged every one of you as a supervisor does all of his people. No. As a mayor does all of their people. No. How, Paul, are you going to emphasize that when you went into Thessalonica, you were concerned about individuals? And he says, I'm going to give you an analogy that will show you how we are to be concerned about individuals. I want you to be concerned about each other as a father is his children. You know, a good father knows their children. A good father knows that each child is different. A good father knows that each child has different skills, different abilities. A good father recognizes the fact that one child may be younger and another older. In other words, different stages in life. 
Friends, if we're ever going to help people, we've got to stop seeing people as a lump sum saying there's an entire community out there and we're going to have to pause long enough. Instead of seeing the whole forest, we're going to have to see the tree. Who is your neighbor that lives on the right of you? What is it that you could show that particular neighbor that would help them see Jesus Christ? What about the neighbor that lives on the left of you? What is it that you could show that particular neighbor? Someone says, well, I've never stopped and thought about it that way. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, let's look at individuals. That's what fathers do. Fathers see individuals. Now let's back up to verse 10. And now let's lay some groundwork of some things that we ought to be doing in light of our relationship with individuals that live among us. In verse 10, he says, you are witnesses and God also. Now notice these three things, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Notice that relationship again. It's very similar to the point that we made when he spoke of the mothers earlier. Among you. It is you and I as Christians, a part of the Lord's church, living among people in the world, making contact with them, not becoming one of the world, but living among them in order to better their lives, in order to serve them, in order to show them Jesus Christ. Well, what are we going to have to be? Again, I say to you, notice, he didn't say become one of them. Instead, he really goes to the other extreme. He says, when you live among them, you're going to be so different from them. You're going to live a life where you're devout. You're going to live a life where you're just. You're going to live a life where you're blameless. Friends, the world isn't anything like that, but yet that's the way we live among the world. Now, when we think about how these can be described or defined, we see that what Paul first is doing is saying, this is not necessarily a direct teaching of how we treated you as much as it is, this is who we were when we came to you. In other words, Paul and Silas, they were devout men. That's who they were. They were just men. They were blameless. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Devout deals with uh, free from that that would make him pure. In other words, it deals a whole lot with holiness, with purity. When we think of just or justly, that deals quite a bit with righteousness. As a matter of fact, the five times that it's used in the Scriptures, I believe two of the times it's it's described as as just, and and three times it's translated as, as righteous. And so the idea here is that when an individual is just, they live a righteous life before others. Now, what is blameless? Blameless is to say... We're not continuing in sin. In other words, we're living among the world. And what does the world see? The world sees an individual that they do not have vices that are reigning in their life. Let's use Paul as an example since he's the one writing this. Paul, have you ever made mistakes? See, some people think blameless means that the person has never done any wrong. Well, we know that no one was blameless by that sense of the definition, except Jesus Christ. Others say blameless means no one says 
anything wrong about the other. But Jesus didn't even fulfill that because people blame Jesus regularly. So what we find out is that there's a lot of misunderstanding about the word blameless. So Paul, have you ever committed sin? First Timothy, the first chapter, he would say beginning at verse 12 and especially verse 13, he would say, I was a persecutor of the church and I was an insolent man. In other words, he would close verse 15 by saying, I'm the chief among sinners. So Paul would say, I was a terrible man at one time. I persecuted the Lord. Well, Paul, how did you come into Thessalonica? He says, I came in as a blameless man. Paul, how in the world can that be? How can it be that you have such sin in your past, but yet you can come into Thessalonica and say, I'm blameless? Friends, the fact is this. He wasn't continually living that life of sin. You could ask Paul at the time he was writing this, Paul, will you ever sin again? And I assure you, he would say, yes, I'm not a perfect man. But yet he could still claim to be blameless because when Paul did sin, he had every intention of repenting of that sin and cleansing his life and living a life that was blameless. Now, did you notice how this verse began? Verse 10, he began by saying to the people of Thessalonica, you are witness and God also. He's talking about a relationship that's like a father with a child. And he's saying, you know how I lived? You are witness. If anyone knows us, our children know us. They know us behind closed doors. They know us when we come in in the evening and we let our hair down, so to speak. They know our weaknesses and they know our times of impatience. They know our shortcomings. Isn't it awesome that Paul, when he uses this description of like a father and a child, he says, friends, I have striven to live the Christian life before you to the extent that even though I look at you as my children, I know you know the pure life that I live. Friends, can our children say and describe the pure life that we live, not because they've heard us say, say that, but because they've seen us live that life day in and day out. And if we need to be reminded of another witness, he says, not only have you seen it, but he says, God is my witness. Naturally, I need to be reminded frequently that I live before God. And God knows whether or not I'm blameless. God knows whether or not I'm devout. And God knows whether or not I'm just. Note this for what it's worth. You can't take what I'm about to, about to say to you to the bank in its consistency. But yet this helps me understand this passage perhaps a little better. Many times, and this is what I mean, it's not every time. But many times the word devout deals especially with man's relationship with God. Many times the word just deals with man's relationship with man. Now, I'm not saying that it's always that consistent. Oftentimes, our relationship with God, we need to deal justly. Or our, our relationship with each other, we need to have that holy and pure life. But I'm simply saying to you, it's interesting if we do think about it that way, that what Paul is saying about has a father, the way he lived with them, he's saying, I have my relationship with God right as I live before you. And I also treated you guys right as I lived before you. That seems to be what he's saying. And then he's even saying, I let the Lord reign in my life as we've just sung. Because he says, I didn't allow sin to reign in my life, I'm blameless. Now, 
When I studied this passage this week, I could not help but think of the book of Job. Look back, if you would, with me. And, and I shouldn't even say the book of Job. Really, the book of Job is not what came to my mind. It was the man Job. Oftentimes, we look at the story of Job, and we kind of just get those first few verses in our mind, and then we go into a study of the of, of a study of uh, pain and suffering and why does all of this take place? And that's a wonderful study. But friends, this morning, I'd like for you just for a few minutes to just not think about all that aspect of Job. And let's just look at a description here because it's amazing how similar his life was described to what Paul described his coming into the city of Thessalonica. Look with me, if you will, in the first verse. We're in Job, the first chapter. And he says, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. Notice this description. That man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Let's pause there for just a moment. Do you see the description? God throughout the scriptures is describing men that he wants us to look up to. And he says, let me tell you about the way Paul went into Thessalonica. God says, I want to tell you about Job and the way he lived before any of the losses. Someone says, I don't see how Job did it. Friends, Job didn't decide to become a strong man when he started losing everything. We see right here a description of a strong man before any losses. What was the description? Just like with Paul, he was blameless. Upright, just like the description with Paul, he was just. Almost the exact same meaning, the idea of upright. In other words, his life was headed in one direction and it was pointed in the right direction. He lived a righteous life. But then notice as we look at a description of a devout life, as he says there at the end of one, he was one that feared God and shunned evil. In other words, anything that would bring impurities into his life, he shunned it. I don't want those things in my life. Job, what do you want in your life? I want God and His way in my life. I respect God. I fear God. I want to stay away from anything that would mar that relationship with God. What a beautiful thought of a man. That was verse 2, a father of ten. Now, as we're about to read this next verse that we're going to read, which will be verse 5, I want you to note the fact that this was written early on in the history of mankind, so this would have been during the patriarchal age. We're accustomed in the Mosaic age to having priests that would offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. Keep in mind, during the patriarchal age, it seems to be the responsibility of the fathers to act as a type of priest to offer the sacrifices, and of course, to have the spiritual well-being of their children as their highest priority in life. And so let's read verse 5 with that in mind. And this becomes a very beautiful story here. Let's read together Job 1 and 5. He says, So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, talking about his ten children. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. See the individuality there? For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now as verse 5 begins, the days of feasting, we do not know what that's referring to. 
Some have said it could be referring to the the children's birthdays and that they gather together regularly uh, among themselves as families to celebrate. Others says that perhaps it was religious days that they were celebrating or even some kind of secular days that they were celebrating. But the point is this. While they were doing what they did as a family together, they had a father that was doing something else regularly as the patriarch of that family. As the patriarch of that family, he was rising early in the morning and he was thinking, fathers, please get this. He was thinking about each individual child and offering a sacrifice. Do you pray for each individual child? Do you offer up your, the, the, the desires, the petition of your heart on behalf of each child? seeing where they are in life, the abilities that they have and that they need to fulfill, the challenges that they face, the stages where they are. Friend, here's a man that got up early in the morning as the patriarch of his family on a regular basis and he offered sacrifice for each child. He had something that he apparently longed for. He wanted to make sure that they were sanctified And that their heart was right with God. That's what's implied there in verse 5. Can I as a father say that that's what I want more than anything for my children? And that's what a part of my daily life is, is prayers and encouragement and etc. on behalf of all that. Now, it's easy to do as we just did. We just studied verse 1 and we kind of summed it up. Then we dropped down and we studied verse 5 and we kind of summed that up. Before we leave this, I'd like for you to do this with me. I'd like for you to merge those two verses together. What kind of man is going to really be able to lead his family spiritually if he himself is not a just man, an upright man, and a blameless man? You see, I would suggest to you that the success of Job as a father was in the kind of man that he was as much as what he did. In other words, I don't think we can separate those two. As we go back to our text in 1 Thessalonians, we'll notice the same thing in the second chapter as in verse 10, Paul talks about the kind of man that he was. But then as we go immediately into verse 11, he talks about what he tried to accomplish among them. Note as we read verse 11, he says, As you know how we, and note these three things, we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. The word exhort means literally to call to one side. It is to encourage or pray or beg someone to come to one side. We see perhaps the intensity of that word in the sermon preached in Acts, the second chapter, when in verse 40, Peter said, and with many other words, did he exhort and testify saying, save yourselves from that untoward generation. What was Peter doing? Making that casual suggestion, maybe you might want to come to the side of Christ. No, he was standing on the side of Christ, Peter was, and he was exhorting others, don't stay out there in a crooked and perverse world. Step out of that world and come to our side. Note this, fathers, and note this as we think about how we're going to reach our community. We have to decide back in verse 10, where where are we going to stand? 
Are we going to stand just and devout and blameless? If so, then we're ready to exhort others. Come to this side and stand with us on this side. Now, note something that's not easy. We're going to talk about wisdom here. Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I believe that phrase out of Ephesians 6 and 4, provoke not your children to wrath, may be a part of what he is talking about here in 11, as he says, we exhorted, and then note the next two, and comforted and charged. You and I would have the wisdom of Solomon if we always knew which time our children needed to be comforted and which time our children needs to be charged. You know, there's a time when a child just needs a real firm lining up. I'm going to charge you. I want to tell you like it is. You're going to like it. You will like it. I'll make you like it. There's a time that children need charging. In other words, now get in your mind what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, I'm standing on the side of Christ. And I went into Thessalonica and I lived that life in front of you. I'm on the side of Christ. And now what I did as a father does his children, I exhorted you to come to the side of Christ. And sometimes I might have been pretty firm. And we read through 1 Thessalonians and there was a lot of time. We've already studied some of those texts. The very next chapter and the third, especially the fourth chapter, he's firm with them. There was times that he charged them. He said, this is the way it is. But fathers, it takes a lot of wisdom to say, you know what? Maybe my charging during this particular afternoon needs to be a little more comforting. Maybe my child is at a different stage or experience, you might say, this afternoon. Maybe they need a little bit more like a mother's tenderness this afternoon. But he's writing to fathers, about fathers, saying, I comforted you. It's so easy for fathers to get wrapped up in the fact that we're raising little men. And we forget that while we're trying to raise little men, at this particular moment, they're little boys. And they may be at a stage where instead of a hard scolding, maybe what they need that particular time is a firm hug and some sympathetic words. But yet if we always did that, they would never grow. And so then we have to have the wisdom to know how to temper that with the charge, with the firmness. Wisdom. We need to pray about it. We need to strive to achieve it. And we need to remember that that's the way Paul reached a community. He went in and he said... I lived the life where I stood on the side of Christ and then I invited you to stand on the side of Christ with me and sometimes I had to comfort you because your heart was breaking. Other times I had to charge you because you were going in the wrong direction and I had to remind you where we were headed. 
But finally, and we conclude and extend the invitation with this. Here's what all fathers are hoping to accomplish if, if they have godly thoughts and expectations. Look at verse 12. He's coming right out of that phrase in 11. As a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What did Paul want? He came in and invited them to the side, not so they could be like Paul, but so that they could walk worthy of God. What's God done for us? He's given His only Son. How could I ever walk worthy of that? Well, we can't walk worthy in the sense that we deserve it, but we can walk worthy in the sense that we are God's children. We want to be a part of His kingdom. We want to give glory to Him by the way that we live. Fatherhood. Many of us here could say and talk for hours the way our life has been changed because of fathers that we had. I wonder how many in our communities can say, you know, those same characteristics. I have a brother or sister uh, in Christ that a part of your congregation, and, and they're my neighbor, and I see those same characteristics in their life and the way they deal with me. If we're ever going to reach the community, it's not because we decide to reach a whole community. If we ever reach a community, it's because you and I as individuals go out and see the lives of individuals and strive to be a little bit more like mothers and a little bit more like fathers in the way we deal with them. And with that, the population of heaven can increase. Let's be wise. Let's pray about it. Let's give our life to become it. This morning, if you're not a child of God, what a blessing it would be in your life and in our lives because we would rejoice so much to see anyone make their life right with God. It requires humility to repent and turn away from self and to turn to God. It requires a belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. One can't be ashamed to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And what a blessing to be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. If you've never done that, won't you do that this morning? Maybe perhaps you have been baptized into Christ and you evaluate your life and many of the characteristics. Maybe we've studied today. You said, you know, they're, they're just not what they ought to be. But yet, get on the right track before we leave today. If we can help you.